This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. Now, Sarah, I have to ask before we jump into the episode proper, if you were living on the Western frontier, I just have to know what your job would be. Oh, you know those guys who like sit on the roof of the saloon and snipe at everybody during like the big showdown <laughs> in town? Yeah, yeah. That would be me, especially if I get to do a Wilhelm scream if I happen to be hit in the crossfire. So you're saying that, that that's actually their job? Like they don't, they don't they actually stay up there and that's sort of, you know, they earn a city day's pay just by sighting down anybody that they might need to snipe? Yeah, I mean, I don't feel like I see most of those characters at any other time in the movie, just like walking around town very much. So I feel like that would be a pretty sweet gig. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. Sounds better than mine. I'd probably be like the uh, the vaguely ineffectual, bespectacled banker or or you know Western Express guy who's just sort of there, and he he probably is the one who dives behind a counter when the shooting starts. Uh, just so long as you're not the one holding up trains, I guess. <laughs> There is that. Listeners, we are going to be talking about a film set on the Western frontier. We're going to be talking about Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog this week on episode 318 of Seeing and Believing. Well, we're here on episode 318 of Seeing and Believing, and last week was a pretty big episode. We made the announcement, Sarah, that you were joining the show full-time as a new permanent co-host, and I know that was an exciting time for me, and I have to say, looking at our Twitter account, the the congratulations were definitely pouring in. Yeah, it felt really nice, actually. It kind of feels like a little bit of a promotion of sorts, so I'm delighted to be here as well. No, um, I'm delighted to be here, and uh, it feels really nice to have been able to take up permanent residence in the Seeing and Believing virtual podcasting booth. Um, so I, if you weren't going to be able to get rid of me before, I don't think you're going to be able to get rid of me now. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, we And that's not actually the only uh, big change that we're, we're making on the show. I'm actually really excited about what we've got in the store in the future. Uh, and I'm really excited to announce this uh, new segment that we're going to be adding to the show starting next week. Uh, it's as yet unnamed, but stay tuned listeners for that. But we're going to be kind of dividing the each episode up into two parts. The first part, of course, will be the the review of a newish release that, of course, you're all familiar with. And the second segment is going to be one where we reach back into, you know, the DVDs that, you know, uh, one of us hosts has on our shelves or a movie that we both haven't seen but really want to catch up with that we haven't had a chance to. Mm-hmm. And uh, that inaugural segment is going to be airing on next week's episode. And we've got quite the film to kick the whole thing off. It's a big one. We're going to be watching the 1931 version of Dracula. As as you say, Sarah, the OG starring Bela Lugosi himself. It's one that I haven't seen. It's one that you think really highly of. And I'm really looking forward to catching up with it and 
talking about on the show with you. Yeah, I'm delighted to. Um, it's, I mean, one, vampire rules. I figured it might be a good idea to kick us <laughs> off with with an actual vampire. Um, and then also just talk about the movie and um, maybe a little bit of its legacy and then just how it holds up nowadays. Um, and I'm also just really excited to talk about older movies. Um, I don't know about you, Kevin, but my personal philosophy of movie watching is that it is impossible to watch everything that came out in a given year, let alone the stuff that came out earlier. So I really like getting the chance to catch up with something that I may not have had the chance to see before. I'm very much on board with that. I think, you know, when the pandemic first started way back in 2020, you know, going to theaters wasn't really possible. And Wade and I decided to take the opportunity to, you know, do something a little bit different. And that involved a lot of retrospectives, going back and catching up with films we hadn't seen, or just taking the chance to watch some underseen gems that, you know, we'd heard of, but just weren't widely available. And that was so much fun to do. And I'm really looking forward to making that kind of a regular fixture of the show. I'm I'm glad to kind of like make it something where seeing and believing can be not just about, you know, what's new and shiny, but also about the bedrock on which all mm-hmm. that uh, new shiny stuff is built. So it's it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited about that, too. Like movies continue to exist after the year that they came out. And I feel like it's definitely worth spending that time and energy and frankly, curiosity on them as well. Um, It's just it's one of those things that I think a lot of people tend to talk about watching movies as like catching up or sometimes as homework or like almost like it's an obligation. And I don't really see this segment being that at all. I'm really more excited to I don't know, collectively expand our horizons, catch up on the watch list, like take down the coffee table stack a little bit more, um, Mm -hmm. however you want to call it. Yeah. And one thing that I'm actually going to try to train myself out of is this weird sense of shame about not having seen some some Mm. films like there's like you say, there's so many films out there. It's impossible to see everything. Mm -hmm. So and it's not really cinephilia is not really about seeing everything so that you can have the the biggest uh, number on your letterboxed uh, archive list. Like it's yeah. much more about just seeing what's great and enjoying it. And I'm I don't know. I'm personally looking forward to adjusting my mindset to be less about the numbers and more about just enjoying the films that are in front of me. So this seems like a good way to do that. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It it feels like it's less of a oh you haven't seen I don't know X movie here the godfather or something it's not oh you haven't seen that why haven't you seen that it's more of a oh you get to see the godfather for the first time or whatever other movie it is that's on your list like i'm very jealous of people who get to see some of these movies that we're going to be watching for the first time and i'm also really excited to catch up with the ones that uh i haven't had the chance to see either well you can definitely get that envy to work with me because i have not seen the 1931 dracula so i'm going to be experiencing it afresh here on next week's episode listeners if you're interested in watching along that's why we're announcing it on this week's episode we want to give you a chance to track it down see it for yourself so that when we do talk about it on the show you can uh, participate in that experience as well and maybe even share some of your own thoughts on twitter in advance Mm -hmm. we'd love to share listener feedback about dracula on the air so uh, you know we can all be part of the conversation together should be a good time Uh, But for now, let's uh, turn our attention to the new release that's on our plates in front of us, and that would be Jane Campion's film from last year, 
the power of the dog. It's set in the hardscrabble world of rural Montana in 1925. Campion's film features Benedict Cumberbatch playing slightly against type as Phil, a domineering rancher whose first language appears to be bullying and intimidation for pretty much everyone around him. He gets a chance to give those skills a workout when his brother, played by Jesse Plemons, marries the owner of a country inn, played by Kirsten Dunst, and brings her home. At first, the film seems a straightforward melodrama, pitting the newlyweds and their teenage son against Phil, but it eventually reveals itself to be something much more tangled and complex than that. Spoiler alert, Sarah, both of us had The Power of the Dog on our top 10 lists two weeks ago, Mm -hmm. so it's safe to say that we really like this film, and we both said a little bit about our reasons for liking it on that episode. But I saw from Letterboxd that you had a chance to sit down with it for a rewatch before recording. And this is the sort of film that's likely to reveal new facets the more time you spend with it. So my question for you is, what really struck you on that repeat viewing of The Power of the Dog? Um, like you said, it's it really is a movie that rewards second watchings. I'm sure that if I watch it for a third time, I'll pick up on additional details as well. Um, this is just such a lovely, and lovely is a really weird word to say it, but it is a beautifully shot, fully realized world that looks like um, a, almost a hopper painting with a lot of jewel tones and like natural light. Um And as I sat down to watch this movie again, knowing how it ends, which I don't think we're going to get into too much, um, it struck me that this is a perfectly balanced movie. Like you'd said, it feels like a melodrama at the beginning, and then it turns into something a little bit different and a little bit more twisty as it goes on. But if you go in having seen it once already, you understand the themes that are going to become more apparent in the second half, even as they're starting to be seated in the first half. So I just, I really appreciated the complexity of the storytelling and the complexity of the characters and just how beautifully shot this movie is. It's truly gorgeous. What struck you uh, when you first saw this movie uh, about it? Like you said, it is sort of the, it is the sort of film that um, reveals uh, new, new facets of itself. And it's, um, it's easier to see on a repeat viewing uh the payoffs that are going to come in the second half of the film that are seated in the first half. Now, I haven't had a chance to actually sit down with it and rewatch it, but when I was watching it the first time, it did strike me in retrospect, kind of while I was on the train heading back home after after watching it, that there there are some payoffs that you don't really expect in the very beginning. The, the fact that... Um, Cody Smith McPhee's son, the the way that he is introduced and characterized in the first half, mm-hmm. and even the the opening uh, voiceover in which he talks about how uh, every boy wants to wants his mother to be happy and how mm-hmm. important that is to him, and you think, oh, that's you know that seems like uh, you know a very pretty standard sentiment, and I think that uh, the second segment doesn't necessarily undermine or subvert that in any way, but it adds new dimensions to mm. to it that are are very interesting. And I think really reveal this film as as a critique of masculinity, which is, mm. you know, again, it's not necessarily 
uh, unexpected. You see the way that Phil acts. He's got he's got the swagger. He's you know all about being the the rough and tumble boys on the trail uh, kind of mindset where he's all about blustering and kind of being the man's man. Mm-hmm. And so it's not surprising that Campion uses that to critique this sort of rough and ready masculinity. But what I found interesting about this film is that that's not the only angle she takes in order to do that. There are lots of different kinds of characters, lots of different kinds of men in this film, and every one of them kind of has their own perspective on what it means to be a man. And it's very interesting to watch how those different strands interweave and come together in that second half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially watching everybody react to the men around them, however they present. Like Phil is extremely brusque and harsh and cruel in a way that feels very re- like not relatable in a, in a way that feels very true. Like I have met men like Phil before. They're the kind of people who will say something mean and cutting, but that they can reasonably deny as having meant to be mean or cutting um yeah, like slap and you then on there the back are, and say oh i'm just joshing you you know <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah or they'll say something that like in context is is something that just sort of takes you aback because you didn't expect them to say something so blunt or so rude in the moment and then the more you think about it the more you realize like oh this person was just being cruel for cruelty's sake and phil is very much like one of those people But there are also other portraits of masculinity. There are all of the ranch hands who follow Phil around and who basically parrot everything that he's doing. They look up to him. They think that he's the greatest person who's ever lived. Um, And then there's Phil's brother, who is a very different picture of what a man ought to be, I think. Um, He's everything that Phil is not. He's nothing that you really quite expect when you first meet him as well. And then Cody Smith McPhee's... Peter is a character who is growing into a man over the course of this movie, and all of the ranch hands treat him quite cruelly, partly because Phil starts off by doing it, but also because Peter presents very obviously as queer. And there is a level of cruelty that these men uh, feel like they have to demonstrate to him because to them, Peter is an aberration and he can't possibly be a man. So they're going to refer to him as Nancy or as a girl and they're going to talk about his skirts and they're 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 just absolutely awful to him. But as the movie moves on, you realize like there is a there is a level of iron. There is a rod of iron in Peter's back, I think, and a sort of strength to him that I don't think any of the other characters around him ever expected. And in a lot of ways, he's much more a man than any of the other men who are around him because he knows how to treat people with uh, respect that's due to them. Um, And he has also studied the way that they are expected to move through the world, and he has decided that he's not going to move through the world in the same way that they do. That's true. Uh, At the same time, though, I think what makes this film interesting to me and what makes it a film that I'm likely to return to is that it it's that that iron that you that you pointed out the fact that that Peter has decided that he's not going to be like the men who are constantly belittling him he's going to kind of forge his own path mm-hmm. in in a in a other and another kind of movie that would sort of be sort of like okay well then he's the hero he's the underdog and these are the mm-hmm. bad guys 
and the audience is is it's very clear to the audience where their sympathies should be and what i like about uh this the script that that we have here that that campion uh, adapted from the novel is that it doesn't really it it doesn't go in that direction all of the characters mm-hmm. kind of are you know they they start out being one way and you sort of expect from having seen many dramas like this that you're going that they're going to go in a certain direction so you know kirsten dunst is you know constantly being belittled by phil and she's surrounded by these intimidating surroundings as the new wife of a of a wealthy rancher um you kind of expect her to be intimidated by it but you you also expect okay there's going to be a big scene where she's finally going to find some inner pluck and she's going to tell phil off to his face or she's going to get in a good zinger and that's going to be sort of the moment where she finds herself or finds her strength and we don't really ever get that moment from her Mm -hmm. we don't really see uh you know phil the same way at the end of the picture as we saw him at the beginning of the picture jesse plemons's character you know he is a very kind man but he's also kind of blinkered he sort of expects that a doting husband would behave some way and is blind to how in a lot of ways he's contributing to the weight of expectations on dunce's character it's just all it's all Mm -hmm. very intricately woven and it it zigs where you expect it to zag and I, I i thought it was really impressive yeah it feels a lot more realistic in that sense i think like all of these characters are who they say they are and are who you understand them to be at the very beginning. But like you'd said, there's a lot of additional layers that get piled on top of them um, throughout the course of the movie. And instead of contradicting itself, the movie does a really good job of complicating itself and complicating its characters. Mm. Yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will me To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. I, I like that that com- complicating versus contradicting uh, mm-hmm. contrast that you set up there because I think that's a elegant way of putting it where it's not as if the characters are inconsistent or if they are inconsistent, they're inconsistent in a way that feels very human mm-hmm. rather than simply unbelievable. I really like how uh, there's, there's this uh, sequence... Uh, in the second part of the film where Peter, he he traps a rabbit and he kind of brings it in and uh, mm-hmm. his mother is saying, oh, it's so sweet that you brought a rabbit. And then, you know, one of the um, the uh, the help, mm-hmm. uh, a young girl played by Thomas and McKenzie, who I was lovely to very see her. happy to see <laughs> yeah. her in this film. Um, uh, Thomas and McKenzie, you know, think, oh, it's so sweet that this that, that he brought a rabbit in. So she's, you know, going up to his room and you, she's like almost ready to flirt with him over. It. And then she sees 
that he actually caught the rabbit to practice dissections because he's in medical school. And that's mm-hmm. just, it's its such a subversion of expectations. And it makes you see Peter as not just intellectual, but also there's an element of coldness to him mm-hmm. that is, like you said, it's a complication. It's not necessarily, its it's something we haven't seen in him before, but when it's revealed, you think, ah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, too, to watch all of these characters begin to understand each other in the same way that we as watchers understand them while we're watching the movie, too. Like, there's a moment a little bit later on that also involves um, a rabbit and Peter and Phil out in the fields working together. And um, Peter is asked to put a wounded rabbit out of its misery. And then when he does what he has to do, Phil watches him and the expression in his eyes, like Benedict Cumberbatch is fantastic in this movie. The expression in his eyes is kind of a, oh, I didn't know you were capable of that. And I'm not going to say anything about it, but the way that I view you and the way that you move through the world um, is going to shift a little bit because of this one small action. Yeah, let's talk about uh, Cumberbatch a little bit, because I, I mentioned at the beginning of the segment that he is very much playing against type, and that's true. You know, we're kind of used to seeing him as the as the the cool, aloof, uh, intellectual guy, you know, the, the Sherlock Holmes or, you know, the he or when he's playing much, much more villainous, like the smog, the dragon, you know, but there's always kind of this very, this very elite kind of air that he that he carries with him and it's it's always very intellectually honed and this film really he still has kind of this arrogance to him but it's an arrogance of a different kind and i really like how you say that the the expressions that he holds on his face are you you definitely can tell that he's thinking but it's not the sort of like sherlock analytical sort of thinking it's much more there i don't know there's a different dimension to to the way that phil thinks and and operates that i i found very compelling yeah i mean he feels like whatever the western equivalent of street smart is he's that but there's also a level of intellectualism kind of layered underneath it i think it's a brilliant piece of casting because you do learn a little bit more about this character about phil and about his brother's respective educations later on in the movie and it's not what you would expect and when you learn that fact about Phil in particular, again, it complicates him. It doesn't necessarily contradict his rough-and-tumble persona. And then it also clarifies why he says that he enjoys, um, I think he says out loud at one point, I stink and I like it. And he kind of wears that proudly, like that roughness, that rejection of polite society, the his need to go out into the West and to herd cattle and be rough and tumble and be, I I suppose he thinks that he's being his own man in a way, but the way that he's doing it, he's sort of trampling around everybody else around him. And it's a a level of carelessness, I think, um, that when layered with the knowledge that he is in fact like an educated person um i think it i think it complicates the way that he presents himself in the world and it also clarifies a few things about like why he's maybe rejected society and decided to go live off in the plains uh, alone with his brother and a few other people 
I, I talked about in my uh, comments when I brought this up for my top 10 list that the film really has this this literary quality to it, and, and mm-hmm. especially in the characterization. And I think that dimension of Phil that you you were just talking about just now um, really highlights that. It's It's a very... I think psychologically acute way of portraying somebody who um, has has a perverse streak in his nature, and by perverse I mean um, does things intentionally uh, to distance himself mm-hmm. from others, to to be antisocial, to uh, do things yes. that are sometimes actually harmful to himself. Um, specifically, uh, you know, purposely and specifically because he wants to be a little bit alienated. Mm-hmm. And of course, later on in the film, we find out what sorts of dynamics and internal thoughts might be driving that. But even if we never got that, I still think it's a a fascinating portrait of somebody who just wants to be the way he is and maybe even takes a little bit of pleasure in in being as off-putting as possible. There's a I I think maybe the the moment that crystallized that for me is a moment where um there are all these hides that uh, Phil has accumulated over the course of his work, and he just kind of he likes to have them, but he doesn't really do anything with them. He usually just burns them or destroys them. Mm-hmm. And uh, knowing this, Dunst's character uh, sees that there are some um, some Native Americans who are coming by who want to trade for them, and she um, takes them to them and, and lets them have them because she thinks they're just going to be burned anyway. Mm-hmm. And the unhinged uh rage that uh cumber that that phil unleashes when he finds out what she's done is something to behold and really he he says i need them and he doesn't explain why he doesn't say what he was going to use them for anyway because he wasn't going to use them he just says i need them and there's something in the way cumberbatch delivers that line that i think just says it's such an eloquent scene, even though it doesn't have a lot of words explaining itself, if that it's, makes sense. It's very draconic, I think, <laughs> um, <laughs> tying back to his his role as Smog as well. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a moment earlier on in the movie, too, where he takes a paper flower that Peter has made and he sets it on fire and then lights a cigarette off that paper flower. And there's this level of uncaringness unfeelingness maybe towards the work of other people that he doesn't really seem to be willing to extend to anybody else either like he wants those hides he didn't even make those hides he just stripped them off the cattle that he that he's slaughtered um but he's also willing to mock rose kirsten dunst's character um, he's willing to mock her art um, as she plays the piano, and then he's also willing to destroy the art that Peter makes as well without a second thought. It doesn't matter to him because it's not pleasurable to him what they're doing. It's only pleasurable to, to him to destroy what it is that they're doing. And it, I think it's because of that um, that dimension of him that a later a late film scene where he tells another character that he wants to make something for them, that he wants to make sure that he Mm. finishes this project for them so that they can have the thing that he makes before they leave Mm -hmm. uh, is just, again, it's so eloquent and powerful because we know what kind of person he is. We know what his attitude towards uh, creation is, not just 
um, the creation of other people, but God's creation as well. And just how, how he makes free with those things and exploits them as he pleases. But when he really does care to, to sit down and engage with somebody and create for them, that's a really powerful thing coming from him. And that's all due to the characterization work that Campion has put into his character earlier in the film. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I hadn't thought about the contrasting the braiding hide against the piano, um, but that fits and that makes perfect sense. And I feel like it clarified his character for me a little bit, even just now. Yeah. And and I, I should stress like the the angle of God's creation is something that Campion really does take care to emphasize with the incredible shots of the, you know, what the, the New Zealand countryside standing in for Montana, just these incredible um, vistas. Mm-hmm. Um, the There's a shot of a hillside where Phil tells Peter that you can see the shadow of of a of a dog or a coyote. I can't remember off the top of my head right now. It's um, a dog. A dog. You can see the shadow creeping over it, and you can see it as a viewer. You can see it, and it's just I, I think it's a testament to Campion's sensitivity as an artist that she's not just able to draw these characters with such clarity, but that she's able to draw out the um, the meaning and the beauty of of the natural surroundings as well. So so clearly, mm-hmm. and with natural light, I think I'm not entirely sure. If there was much artificial light, it feels like most of this movie was shot natural light, especially the outdoors scenes. There's just a a clarity to the light, kind of a golden hue that you don't really get all that much. Um, Mm. So if I hadn't known better, I would have thought that it had been shot on film 30 years ago. Um, But it wasn't. It was shot uh, a little over two years ago instead, probably digitally. But it's still like there's there's this level of artistry to that work that you just don't really see all that often. It's just, it's simply gorgeous. Yeah. Lo- lots of credit to the cinematographer, uh, Ari Wegner for her work in, in doing that. Mm-hmm. I, I had not heard that it was primarily uh, shot using natural light, but if so, I mean, that's, that makes it all the more impressive. Mm-hmm. And I, it's nice to see that rough hewn beauty interact again with Johnny Greenwood's score. Yes. I, I, th- I first encountered Johnny Greenwood as a composer the way probably a lot of people did with his score for There Will Be Blood, which is another story about the American frontier mm. and about a man who basically lives to exploit. Um, and I, there, there's something about Greenwood's nervy strings that really just do a number on this film and, and kind of are the the cherry on top in a lot of ways. It's funny you mentioned that because the first time I think I encountered Greenwood was with his score for Phantom Thread, um, oh. which would actually make an oh, incredible double feature with this one. And there's a level of romanticism to that score that I felt like sort of gets layered on, especially in the first half of Power of the Dog. But there's a lot of parallels, I think, between those two movies um, that I'm I'm hesitant to talk about in full, but maybe we'll have to talk about that again at some other future date because there's, I mean, there's a lot of heavy psychological layers on both of those and they both sort of match very well. I think they would make an incredible double feature and not just because of the score, although that would be some good connecting tissue there too. And talk about, you know, literary sensibility. I have to wonder if Greenwood does this on purpose because I feel like There Will Be Blood, Phantom Thread, this film are all just incredible portraits of the characters 
at their center and and mm-hmm. they're they're so complex and interesting and spiky and difficult i i think it's oh that that'd be that'd be a really interesting double feature i think you're right phantom thread i kind of want to rewatch that right now because and greenwood's <laughs> work in that is so different from this one this one's you know the the strings are so jittery and phantom thread's so lush mm-hmm. i know we're, we're getting off topic but i i really like phantom thread a lot and I'm, <laughs> i had not made the connection uh with it until you mentioned it future segment conversation i'm sure future segment conversation for sure. But I guess for now, that's a good place to end this segment. Listeners, that is our review of Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, currently streaming on Netflix. If you've had a chance to watch this film and have any thoughts on on anything that Sarah and I have discussed today or any thoughts that we you think that we should have mentioned that we didn't give enough attention to please let us know you can always email us at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod on twitter and while i'm soliciting feedback definitely let us know if you have seen dracula 1931 and have thoughts on it or if you have what are watching it in preparation for next week's episode and want to share your thoughts on on it in advance of that episode let us know on uh, over email or on twitter as well we'd love to hear from you but for now that's the end of this week's episode i thought it was a great conversation sarah yeah me too um more natural light and more spiky characters please and thank you <laughs> <laughs> that's uh you could i couldn't have said it better myself listeners seeing and believing is brought to you by the christ and pop culture podcast network Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My co-host is Sarah Welch-Larsen, and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.